Corinthians, 6th chapter, verse 11. First Corinthians 6, 11. Here Paul had went through quite a list of uh, sen sensual, uh, sexual, uh, uh, sinful things. I'll get it right in a minute. Uh, and we'll read down through it. Let's start in verse 9. Uh, he's been reasoning with them about taking brothers to court. And then he makes this uh, comment in verse 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that, that's quite a list, isn't it? And now look what he says to these Corinthians in verse 11. And such were some of you. Now, we've studied a little bit about the ge geography of Corinthians and the facts of that geography that there was a representation of all the nations of the world gathered there because of its geographical location. It's set between basically the east and the west and there was a little isthmus went through a, a right there at Corinth, a place where ships could go through. And some of them they had to pull through with horses and stuff but nevertheless, it saved quite a trip of dropping down and going around the, the contour of the land in Asia and going back up again. And so because of that, they had a multiplicity of people from, uh, from all cultures of the world. And that brought all the religious ideas of the world that converged there at Corinth. And so Paul, as he writes to them, he makes a long list here of things that of things that will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Uh, drunkards and uh, revilers, extortioners, and all the list goes there in those two verses, verse 9 and verse 10. Now, he's not saying they can't be saved because they're saved in verse 11, ain't they? He said, and such were some of you. Such, they were some of them that was involved in all of that kind of stuff. Uh, what I'm trying to get at is that uh, the, uh, the drunkard, the thieves, the homosexuals, the immoral people, they have an opportunity to be saved, don't they? But they've got to repent. They've got to turn away from those things. And they can't continue in those lifestyles and expect to inherit the kingdom of God. And then in verse 11, he reminds them, he says, and such were some of you, but there's been a change take place. He says, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name or by the authority of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And that's where our study actually begins this evening, in verse 11. He calls upon them to rejoice in their present position. Now we'll notice in a minute about that position, what they have. 
Now, if I'm enjoying what I possess, I don't want anything else except what I've got. Uh, I've got everything I need. I've got more than I need, actually. Uh, I've got, and these Corinthians surely come to see that. I've got everything anybody has ever dreamed of having. Uh, you are two. Uh, you are uh, you are along with this everything that anybody, including the angels of heaven, ever wanted to be. Now let's discuss what they were. First, he says you're washed. The only other place that that word is used is in Acts 22:16, where Ananias called on Saul of Tarsus to arise and be baptized and wash away his sin. That's the only other place that that passage, that word is used, that word "washed," that Paul told the Corinthians they were, they were washed. They used to be these bad things that he listed, but they've obeyed the gospel and they they've repented. And so they've, they've been washed. And so I think it has something to do with baptism. Wouldn't you assume that? And then he says you're sanctified, justified. Uh, should people of whom these things are true, washed and sanctified and justified, let their differences erect walls or cause walls to separate? Now, if there's sanctified and justified and washed and cleansed by God, should they allow separation and walls to be built between one another? Absolutely not. The church does not have walls built between different groups or different people. We're all one people in Christ. We're the body of Christ. Uh, that's Paul's conclusion. Uh, anytime I'm in uh, dispute with my brother, uh, my brethren, I'm denying my washed, my sanctified, and my justified condition. Or denying these, either one. If I believe that both of us have these three things uh, by the Spirit, by the Spirit's message, we can work out any difficulties that we might have but we're still not going to have a dispute that erects a wall like they were doing, taking one another to court or creating a party. Uh, it's a very sad thing in the church when someone uh, goes and picks out people that they think will agree with them and begins to build walls and sets up parties. Uh, that's called politics, isn't it? Uh, or tries to go around behind and deceive. Those are people who gather people on, on their side before the argument is made. And that's called politics. Politics in a church is the worst thing. Politics makes uh, disputes among brethren. You can't tolerate it. Politics selects out groups and sects sets them off, and that's what they had in the first chapter, wasn't it? Verse 10, Paul said, uh, it's been reported that there's division among you. Some were calling themselves after Paul, and some after Paulus. They had select men that they uh, honored above others in the Lord's body. All right, so 
Paul reminds them there in verse 11 of the nature of their standing uh, before God and before men. They were washed, they were sanctified, they were justified. Uh, they were those things that Paul mentioned there in verse 11. Where they used to be of the other caliber of when they, before they come out of the world, they was fornicators, idolaters, and the whole list of adulterers, and all the things that he lists there. <coughs> now, <coughs> chapter 6, verse 12 through 20, finishing out this chapter, he talks about sexual immorality. Uh, and of course, this is the logical step next, if, if you know the city of Corinth as well as the church of Corinth. Uh, he said you're not disciplined in regard to sin within the body, within the church. Number two, you're not disciplined in regard to your differences with your brethren, taking one another to court. And uh, you're not dis disciplined in regard to your own body. So he deals with the first three problems uh, with a lack of discipline. You're not disciplined in the way that you deal with others', others sins. You're not disciplined in the way that you deal with the differences you have with other people. That's what he's been talking about, isn't it? And you're not disciplined in the way that you treat your own physical body. Uh, they had people there that were evidently uh, into Christ from the uh, Epitorian philosophy, which said that the body desires must not but were not important. In other words, you could fulfill them, but it didn't really affect the inside person. We've dealt with this before, haven't we? When we studied 1 John and the Gnosticism that went on in the first century and still goes on today. All right, so uh, the doctrine was that you could fulfill your uh, desires of the flesh, but it didn't really affect the inside person. The real person inside was not involved in that, was their doctrine. The body was created uh, for that. That would be their argument. And you can't keep it from doing it, but the soul was created for God, so give it to God. And uh, that's the dualism of the Greek philosophy. And we haven't escaped that even to this day, not even in the church. And so that type of dualism uh, is still a present thing, dualism. I hope you understand what I'm talking about here, where they looked upon the desires of the flesh as though go ahead and fulfill and do whatever they you feel like you want to do. Uh, you haven't sinned because the body was made with them appetites. And, uh, uh, but your, your spirit belongs to God, so de uh, dedicate that to God. Serve God in your inner man, but the outward man is free to exercise any desires or cravings that he might have. That's called dualism. I don't think the Greeks uh, invented it. 
I just think they perfected it. And I think they perfected it until we came along. Heathenism is still a very present philosophy in the world today, and it's not because they think uh, fornication is the best or right. Uh, or right. Uh, they just believe it's unavoidable because of the body's makeup. You see what they're saying? It's unavoidable. I have these strong desires. Men have these strong Women have these. All of us have these strong desires. I'll get around to it in a minute. And so it's unavoidable. That's what they're preaching. That's what they believe in this uh, Greek philosophy. We do that sometimes when we've got an alcoholic or addict uh, or addict or some other nature. And when we begin to talk about their sin and somebody says, well, you know, he's always had that problem. The, does that excuse it? That's what they're trying to say. And they say that as though he was justified in continuing in that. That he had a right to, to do it. We talk about that his problem, uh, like we all get to choose one problem that we might have. So if yours is immorality, well, somebody's saying, well, don't be hard on so-and-so. Uh, he's always had that problem. As though it was okay. It's not. Uh, that's uh, Greek uh, uh, dualism. That's just the makeup of the human mind, is what they would say. But we've got to understand that the Bible was written to humans with human language to deal with human problems. And that's what we're looking at in Paul's letter. And so that's what we got here in chapter 6, verse 12 through 20. And so he deals, first of all, with the nature of the body and sexual immorality. <clears throat> in verse 12 and 13, uh, he deals with four principles for the... Uh, for the body as he approaches that problem. Principles, you know, are powerful, that more powerful than rules if you are an adult. Now, if you're a child, you need rules so you can get to the principles. But you first have the rules and then the principles. So there's four principles that are given here uh, so that we might fulfill the uh, the desires of the body according to divine standards. We're not interested in Greek philosophy or Greek dualism. We're interested in Paul's going to present divine standards of uh, performance among men. The desires are holy. Is it holy to desire sex? Yes, it is. And I'll just use that as, as one instance. But there are ways in which that is to be uh, done in marriage. All right. So the desires are holy, but we want to fulfill them in a holy way. And there are four principles that lets us do it. And if you're writing these down, number one is uh, tested uh, by law. 
Paul says all things are lawful. That's his first statement. And he's not saying by that that fornication is lawful. Uh, has he not already said that fornication is unlawful? A absolutely in his letter. Has he not already said that male prostitution is unlawful? Has he not already said homosexuality and lesbianism is unlawful? Has he not also said any sexual perversion, which is uh, in the Greek paranoia, uh, uh, greediness, is that lawful? But he says being lawful is not enough. But that's where you start, is with the lawful. Anything you're going to do, the first thing you look at, is it lawful? In regard to satisfying your sexual desires, where do you start? Well, with that inquiry, is it lawful? Okay. If you can't get it by that gate, or through that gate, don't worry about the next three because it's not in the system. Uh, you, you've got to get it in the system before you can put it through the next three gates. But that's number one, is it lawful? The first gate, any action has to get through before you can consider whether you ought to do it, is, is it lawful? Do you do everything that is lawful? No. Lawful gives you the right to do it, not the obligation to do it. What did we learn about dealing with a brother? It's, you, you've been wronged by a brother, but rather than taking him to court, what do you do? The love aspect of God that reigns in us, his spirit, causes us to do what? forfeit our right and so it's lawful but we'll forfeit that right for a brother so lawful gives you the right to do it but not the obligation to do it now there's other gates that you need to pass that action through other than legality uh, the craving for food is that lawful the need for drink, is that lawful? Sexual attraction, lawful. Solomon said, be satisfied with a woman's breast. We don't need to be embarrassed. Uh, we're adults here. Uh, we're Christian adults. And we shouldn't be embarrassed to talk about uh, these that are holy things and we ought not to be offended by a discussion of them. The whole book was written about true love, the book of Solomon was, against other kind of love. That's the Song of Solomon. <clears throat> I'm sure you've read it. But, not all, but Paul says not all things are expedient. All things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. Uh, we've got a law there again. All things are lawful, but not all things, uh, this version says, is beneficial. Expedient is actually better, I think, because it means 
beneficial under the circumstances. It benefits under the circumstances. If you forfeit your right to take a brother to court or argue your case and get, get what is yours, because of your love for a brother, you will sacrifice. You will allow uh, one to uh, transgress, transgress against you. And so to understand that you need to, you need to add some words beneficial under the circumstances. So add that to that statement Paul made. It's beneficial under the circumstances. <laughs> I don't believe in uh, situation ethics, but I believe in circumstantial uh, evaluation of actions. There's circumstances. One makes it wrong and another one makes it right, but it's the circumstances. There are some circumstances where something is very beneficial. There's other circumstances where the same thing may not be beneficial. There are some circumstances where a thing uh, is innocent and non-harmful, where other circumstances would be very harmful. An example. Here in America, it's uh, harmless to go uh, to the cinema to see even a decent movie. <clears throat> but in Northern Ireland, it is extremely harmful because they view the cinerama itself as unholy. Even if they were showing uh, the Bible there in that movie, you still wouldn't go see it at the Cinerama because in their eyes that's uh, terribly wrong. So here's where circumstances would make a right wrong for you to do. I hope you understand that. Someone says, I'm not going to let them judge my conscience. Then you're never gonna build a church in Northern Ireland. You can give up on that idea because that's what they believe that it's wrong to go to a cinerama, regardless of what's playing. Well, I don't think they've seen Clean Eastwood yet, or they've changed their mind. Ha 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 ha! You guys have lost your ha ha. How about you, Sean? Have you guys lost all back there? <laughs> all right. Uh, you go somewhere where you can make clones out of people. Because if that's your attitude, then everybody's going to be a clone just like you. And wouldn't that be a tragedy if everybody in the church was just like you or like me? You ever thought about that? I have. I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to be belong to a congregation of all worlds. I don't think we'd get along very good. You guys tolerate me pretty good, but I don't think all them Merles would, because I know Merle. <laughs> all right. Uh, wouldn't that be terrible if everybody was just like you, clones? I don't want that to happen, and I don't think you do either. So not all things are expedient. 
And so there's limitations placed on the legality. What's legal? There's a limitation put on it. That limitation is, uh, is, is it expedient? Uh, we talked about this in another one of our classes. I don't know whether it was Hebrews or Romans. I don't know where it was. But I remember recently talking about if you are a woman and you went over to one of them countries that doesn't believe in lipstick, there's nothing wrong with lipstick. Nothing at all. It's called cosmetics. And incidentally, that word comes from the creation. Cosmos. A well-organized and a beautified thing, and that's what cosmetics is. That's where that word comes from, the cosmos. There's nothing wrong with cosmetics, but if you went to, if you flew over to a country uh, that doesn't believe in lipstick and rouge, the Christian woman wouldn't wear it over there. Now, before she got off the plane back in America, she might put it on before the plane landed, but she's not going to wear it over there just as she has a right to. But she's going to forfeit her right for the sake of other human beings that are in ignorance about that. You don't push these kind of issues. <clears throat> and then Paul says, everything is possible for me, but I will not be mastered by any, uh, anything now there's really three statements made after the statement all things are permissible, all things are lawful. Number one, all things are lawful but all things are not beneficial under the circumstances. Number two, all things are lawful <clears throat> but, it, but I'll not let them make me a slave. And number three, all things are lawful but not everything builds up my brother and so pass the legality through those three gates all right you got a legal right to do something but there's three gates paul says you got to pass that through i'll go through them again in case you didn't get them number one is it advisable in behalf of a brother number two is it slave causing? Does it bring you into slavery? And number three, is it building up of the other? Why would you want to do anything that you couldn't get through those three gates? Wouldn't that be pretty selfish? And that's what we have in the church a lot of times is self-centeredness selfishness gonna have it your way regardless of hell or high water and you don't care who it hurts I have my rights boy that's a that's not a biblical attitude at all Christ had his rights too but he forfeited them and made the sacrifice the supreme sacrifice and so <clears throat> there's the first three principles is it lawful is it advisable is it slavery? Will it make me a slave? If you start doing something and you feel it pulling you, wouldn't that be a reason to look at, look at it pretty seriously? If it gets a compulsion pull on you, 
And then the fourth thing that Paul says in these verses is desires are only temporary in verse 13. Food's for the stomach, he says, and the stomach is for food. Uh, that happens to be one of my favorite passages, particularly today, because I started on a diet. And I'm hungry. All right. Uh, that's probably what they're saying uh, in trying to justify their ungodliness. And it's true, but it's not all the truth, is it? Was food made for the stomach? Was the stomach made for food? Yeah, that's true. Well, how can you judge a guy for being a glutton? I mean, he's just doing what he's created to do. That would be the Greek's argument. He's just doing what his body demands of him. He ain't doing nothing wrong. But does the Bible talk about gluttony? It certainly does. Is it wrong to be a glutton? Yeah, it is. I kind of get to the idea. So Paul says, yes, but uh, God will destroy them both. He'll destroy the food. He'll destroy the belly. It's temporary. We get things out of proportion as to what they mean and what they really are in life's way. And men give their lives for some of the most stupid things. Uh, well, I won't go into that. So what is uh, both food and a stomach? The stomach stands for desires here. Paul's dealing with a doctrine that's a little deeper than what you see on the surface. He's dealing with this uh, Gnosticism that believes in dualism. Let the body do what it feels like it needs to do. If you like to eat, just eat, 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 eat. Just keep on doing it. After all, uh, God wants the spirit, so give him your worship and let your body do satisfy itself. Alright, so uh, the stomach stands for desires. And the food stands for uh, what satisfies the desires, regardless of what it is. Paul just uses this as an illustration. And both the desire and the thing that satisfies the desire is what? What did Paul say it was? Temporary. Because what's God going to do? He's going to destroy them both. So it's temporary. Uh, going to be destroyed by God. That's what he says. Your physical appetites will not be your eternal feelings. That's good to know because I'm uh, so tired of some of my physical appetites. I'm so sick to death of what my physical appetites have caused me to do. And I'm sure you are too. I'm tired of that. That's why uh, I'm ready to go home. I've had it with this facing these things and fighting these things. I'm going to serve as long as God leaves me here, but I'm about uh, where Paul was. Uh, if you'll excuse me, I'm going home, and that's what Paul said. I finished my course. I fought a good fight. I've kept the faith. Remember 2 Timothy 4. All right, so the purpose of both the food and the stomach 
will be uh, rendered uh, inoperative. That's the meaning of the word destroy. It doesn't mean uh, annihilated. It just means it has, has no importance. In a, in a spiritual kingdom, stomach and food doesn't operate. Has no purpose is what he's saying. Just don't fit it into the into the environment. Now when he uses the stomach, he uses a word that also sometimes means the womb. I don't think uh, he has that in mind, but it's the inner part of a person. That part where as far as physical appetites or physical desires are concerned, uh, most important thing, things go on. The stomach the cavity, the belly, the womb. That's the meaning of that word. And so there are four principles that will let me satisfy the physical desires in a godly way. And here they are. Number one, is it lawful? Number two, is it advisable? Will it hurt my brother, in other words? Or is it practical for me to do? Wear the lipstick or not? Number three. <laughs> I hope nobody saw that. I had to look at my hand to see how many fingers I had. <laughs> Number three. Are you guys laughing at me? <laughs> that, that hurt right here. <laughs> Number three. Uh, it don't make me a slave. Number four. I remember that it's only temporary and therefore I won't attach too much importance to even the lawful satisfaction of it and the expedient satisfaction of it. Now in the latter part of verse 13 and 14, uh, Paul deals with the use of uh, use or purpose of the body. I think Paul here anticipates these people here that want to practice this immorality, uh, the rational objection or, or statement, since the natural desires are temporary and their use will not affect the soul or the resurrection, according to them, uh, of the body, why can't we just go ahead and do them? That would be their teaching. Let the body do whatever it feels like it wants to do. You haven't sinned, even though it's called sin, because there's two parts to you, and the other part is the spiritual part that God wants. You can see how that doctrine would sell. And it's alive and well today in the church even. <clears throat> he does, therefore, state positively what the stomach and the body was created for. First of all, he states it negatively. It wasn't created just for food. Because uh, that's temporary. 
So he says in the latter part of verse 4, 14, the body is not uh, meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Uh, so don't take the fact that your stomach needs food, and, and food doesn't have any reason to exist without your stomach, to say, therefore, that your body was created for sexual immorality. That's their jump in logic. He says, don't take one uh, physical need uh, satisfaction and press it to the point that, therefore, since the body cries out for sexual fulfillment, you can fulfill it any way you want to. Don't go there. All food, not just some food, is there, uh, uh, is there some unholy food? None. Uh, there may be some that I don't like, but it's not unholy. You can eat dog, cat, but that doesn't mean the food uh, is unclean just because you don't like it. Uh, monkey brains is clean. They eat monkey brains over in the Far East. Locusts and wild honey is clean. After all, John the Baptist liked it, but I don't think there's anything you can fix, fix it in that, that I'd like it. Chocolate grasshoppers, the same way, but they are uh, clean. So all those physical desires that can be satisfied by all those exotic foods does not therefore say that since my body craves sexual satisfaction, I can satisfy it with any kind of sex. Can't do it. No more. Uh, the body is not made for that. But Paul says, but for the Lord, it's made for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now that's an interesting statement. The Lord for, uh, is for my physical body. My physical body is for the Lord. That's what Paul's saying. And the Lord is for my physical body. And in many ways, I think in a very beautiful way, I look to him and find out what this physical body should be doing. Uh, I can watch him as he goes around uh, the lepers and eats with sinners and deals with concern uh, deals with concern with the Samaritans, uh, loving the unloved, uh, defending the undefended. And I'm talking about what a body is intended to do. This is what God intends for a body to do, to follow the example of Jesus. <coughs> Okay, verse 14. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Uh, there's a lot said about the human body there. It's not for sexual immorality. It's for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. 
and God intends to raise the body. Now he talks about, in the next few verses, the perversion of the body in verses 15 through 18. The purpose of the body is to serve the Lord. That's the purpose of the body you live in. Your physical body to serve the Lord. Uh, they had uh, perverted that, so he deals with the perversion in verse 15 through 18. Paul makes some real good statements in these next few verses. How am I going to keep from perverting the body? Number one, believers should recognize their union with Christ. And that's what Paul talks about. This is his positive statement. Paul seems shocked by their ignorance over sexual matters. In verse 15, he said, do you not know? In verse 16, he said, do you uh, not know? In verse 19, do you not know? Uh, it's illogical and stupid to believe that Christ would ever lay down with a prostitute, isn't it? Can you imagine Jesus tucking in, uh, in the apostles uh, at night into their houses and then going down to the red light district? That would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? Isn't that an impossible concept to have in your mind? I just can't conceive of that. I don't think you can either. With all of my sin, I just can't imagine Jesus getting involved in that. I just can't imagine that. That's verse 15. He says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ into them with a prostitute? Never. I mean, he just uh, encircles that as absolutely impossible to conceive. That I would take a member of Christ's body and unite that with a prostitute. And so I need to recognize my union with Christ, that I am a part of Christ. Now again, you're familiar with the Corinthians. They had 4,500 priestesses, women who were on a roster and served their time on that roster uh, by going into their community, into the city, and uh, uh, propositioning men to come into the temple to the goddess Diana and offering sex acts to this goddess of sex on the altar. Now, we haven't got that bad yet in America, but that's a reality among men. It's a reality between Adam and Eve and us. And it's happened several times over. And they've got the philosophy now, let the body do as it will. They've had that philosophy for, well, no telling how long. So uh, I need to remember that I'm a part of Christ. I make up his body and uh, I have his spirit. And Paul just asked the question, would you join that to a harlot? 
He's trying desperately to get these people's attention and draw it away from the philosophies of the world. And that's our job today, isn't it? So, uh, you remember we discussed the politic idea that many want to bring into the church the body of Christ. Uh, I'm not just uh, uh, a member of a party uh, like uh, Democrats or Republicans in Christ. Uh, I'm an arm or a finger or an eye, uh, eyebrow. I am some part of the body. We all have different functions, that's true, according to the gifts that God's given us. But we all make up the body of Christ. Can you imagine uniting the part of the body with a prostitute, male or female? Uh, that's impossible to con conceive, isn't it? Number two, if you're making this list. Verse 16 and 17 says, avoid union with prostitutes. He says, recognize your union with Christ and avoid union with prostitutes. Uh, verse 16. Now I'm assuming that if you went back in history, you wouldn't want to go to church at Corinth. Yet they were loved by God. They were the church of God at Corinth. But they had a lot of problems that needed to be corrected, and that's what Paul's doing. He says, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? Now he's doing with her what God intended to be done, but not with her. For he said, the two shall become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. And so, still recognizing your union with Christ, but because of that, now shun, avoid, run away uh, from this union with the prostitute. <coughs> Number three. His next statement is flee that union, not only avoid it, but flee from it. Uh, flee from sexual immorality. Run from it. Now the word flee there is in the present tense, active voice, active voice, which means keep on fleeing from. It's a thing that you continually have to flee from because of the appetites of the body. Now Joseph did just that. And so he uh, remains pure because he continually fled from that uh, desire and that temptation with Potiphar's wife. But David, on the other hand, he didn't. And so he became impure. David may have fled, uh, fled it for a while, but he kept looking at the lady. He just couldn't keep his eyes off the lady. Uh, you cannot flee fornication looking at pornography. You can't do it. You cannot flee union with a prostitute watching some things on the, uh, the boob tube. There are some things you're going to have to make a covenant with your eyes about. Can you imagine making a covenant with your eyes? and saying you can't look at that anymore. You can't look at it in a long time.
time. Uh, there's a beautiful passage in the book of Job. In Job 31 and verse 1, he said, I have made a covenant with my eye. He put restraints on his eye and what it would look at. How then shall I look upon a virgin? That's his statement. In other words, look is the same as Jesus said to gaze upon in Matthew 6. Remember he said that the law says you shall not commit adultery, but I say unto you, whosoever looks upon a woman, well that word in the Greek is gaze upon. It means to stare at longingly. Now you can't help seeing them, seeing a woman, a virgin, but you can keep from looking at them. Uh, there's a difference in there. You can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest there. And that's what Paul is saying here. Keep on fleeing these things. you got to run from them when they appear because you have this appetite. It is an appetite, isn't it? Okay. <coughs> One reason for fleeing fornication is what it will do to your body. That was written over uh, even before they ever knew what AIDS was. You think AIDS just happened accidentally? You think God had something to do with it? What do you think? We need to understand that all other sins that a man commits are outside his body, Paul says. But he who commits uh, sins, sexual sins, fornication, sins against his own body. It will affect you physically is what he's saying. Not only spiritually, but it will affect you physically. Solomon said, He who commits adultery with a woman is void of understanding. He that doeth it would destroy his own body. That's Proverbs 6, verse 32. Now that's a powerful, uh, <clears throat> a powerful concept, and that's uh, before the introduction of AIDS. We put the name AIDS on it, but it's talking about that. Does God have some repercussions for uh, the ugliness of some of these sins? He certainly does. Now Paul's point so far is this. The natural desires of the body become sinful when done in excess. But the sexual act is sinful in itself when done outside of marriage. Even the legitimate natural desires of the body are sinful 
when done in excess. That's why you can't keep your eyes off of uh, women. I mean, you live in a world with them. Uh, when Jesus said, uh, whosoever looks upon a woman, uh, he used that Greek word that you sit and linger and think about it and study about it and you've lusted after her. That's the difference. And I love that illustration that uh, you can't keep birds from flying over your head, but you don't let them build a nest up there. And so even the legitimate natural desires of the body are sinful when done in excess, like drinking, food, uh, rest. A guy can take rest to excesses, can't he? Or how about work? He can take that to excess, can't he? And so natural, legitimate things are sinful when done in excess, regardless of what it is. The sexual act is sinful anytime it, if done outside of the marriage context. Uh, outside the marriage bed, the sexual act is sinful. That's Paul's statement here. Now he makes one other point in this chapter, and that is he talks about who the body belongs to, the possession of the body. Now this is kind of interesting to me because we live in a world that has us believing and starts out teaching the little kids in kindergarten, oh, this is your life and your world, boy, and get after it. And don't let nobody interfere with your little life. And the Christian doesn't have that right because he, he's been bought with a price. Paul asked the question on one occasion, know you not that you're not your own? You've been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God uh, in your body and in your spirit. So uh, he talks about the body belongs uh, is a possession, uh, Lord is a possession of the Lord. It is not yours, so don't say you can do with it what you want to do with it. You don't have that right. You do not have that right. If you understand that you were bought with a price, with the precious blood of Jesus, you don't have the right to allow your pride to rear up and cause trouble in the church because you don't like a brother or a sister or somebody in the church. You don't have that right. Christ died for everybody. You're to work with everybody. I get so amazed at people that uh, are looking for the perfect church. And of course, they ain't never going to find it. Uh, the perfect church is the Lord's church. It's without spot and blemish. Uh, any such thing, that's Ephesians 1 verse 4. God chose it that way. He chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. But nevertheless, that holy and without blame church has all kinds of problems. They're in the mode of repenting from what they mature into and learn about that they don't shouldn't be involved in. Uh, but here's a fella, and you can see his immaturity in it. He talks about the church as they. I had a fella that used to call me years ago and he was always telling me how bad the church performed uh, in this area where he lived 
And he referred to them as they. They do. They did this this morning. They did that. And I finally had enough of this guy. I, I, I finally got a little ugly with him. I said, hold it. I said, aren't you a member of that congregation? Well, yeah. Well, I said, how come you always speak of them as they? Aren't you a part of it? Aren't you one of them? You see, a godly man doesn't look on a congregation that's got problems as something to avoid. He looks at it as a challenge to serve God in the capacity of teaching and preaching the truth and bringing men and women out of ignorance into understanding in a loving way. Think about that. And so if the man of God travels in his work or whatever, moves to Texas or wherever he goes, and he finds himself in a congregation that's got all kinds of problems, what does the man of God do? Well, I ain't going there no more. Why, that's a sinful bunch. No, he don't do that. He says, here is a golden opportunity to reach people with the truth. And I can't wait to get to know them and be able to help them. That's the man of God. But the attitude in the church is, we're looking for the perfect church. We want one where the work's already been done and everybody's perfect and Boy, if we find one thing wrong, we're leaving. We'll show them. You know that attitude. I tried to depict it a little bit. <laughs> it's ugly. So, uh, your body's not yours, so don't say you can do with it what you want to do with it. You can't do what you want to do with it, with uh, my car, or my house, or my wife, without fighting, because they belong to me. Well, your body belongs to God. You just can't. Uh, I don't know where we get it, but we Americans sometimes, somewhere, we got the concept that it's nobody's business uh, what I do. Well, it certainly is. It's the Lord's business. Because you're the body of Christ. But somewhere we were taught, why, well, you've got your rights. Why, it's nobody's business what I do. It certainly is. Now, it's not my business to come and tell you how you need to perform. But it is my business and love to get up and preach in a generic way the truth of God's word and let the chips fall where they may. And if you're obedient to the Lord and you recognize the Lord's word, you'll change and nobody will even know the difference. So you don't go into the congregation, you people, you people. No, it's us. We're the body of Christ. And we aid one another. We help one another. We work with one another. We're not offensive to one another. And in your ignorance, uh, if you offend me or go, uh, and I have a legal right to something, I'll forfeit that for you because I love you that much. You see, that's the idea that Paul's presenting here. Uh, now, uh, 
It's the foot's business what the hand does, isn't it? Well, in my body it is. Does the hand need to be uh, concerned when the feet are leading it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we're the body of God. We belong to God physically. Not just spiritually, but uh, physically. I don't believe in that dualism idea that we've been discussing this evening. Uh, I believe in monotheism, or however you pronounce that word. Monotheism speaks of oneness. I am ultimate, uh, unitarily God's, absolutely and totally God's. That's what verse 19 and 20 uh, of this chapter, verse, uh, 6, brings out. Uh, 19 and 20 says with two statements, I'm, in, uh, I'm indwelled by God and I'm owned by God. God lives here and, I, uh, and he owns where he lives. He lives in me and he owns me. Uh, he don't make payments on it. He made one payment in a place uh, that looked like uh, a little bit like a skull called Golgotha. And that payment was paid in full. He paid for it all. And so my body belongs to him. We don't think that way because of our culture that we've been raised in and dominated over by such ideas. And so verse 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. I need to know that. Uh, you do not have the right to act like you're not a part of the body of Christ. You're not an individual unit. You are a member of the body of Christ. You must consider me. Somebody once said, I don't care. Uh, I, I don't come on Sunday night because I don't get anything out of it. Well, I don't get anything out of you not being there. What about that? You know, we've talked about how the, uh, a candle that's lit in a strong wind blows out. But a bed of coals, when they stick together in a fire, the stronger the wind blows, the stronger those coals light up. Uh, so just come and hug my neck and go home if that's what you want to do. But at least come and hug my neck uh, because we're together in this thing we're not uh, on an individual flight I mean uh, it's not a solo trip we're involved in this thing together and that's what Paul is declaring here but the point is I am not my own Somebody says, I don't know why God told me to do that. He didn't ask you to know why. He just asked you to do it. 
Did he have to give you a reason why? You ever heard a little child ask daddy or mama, why? What? Why have I got to do that? And you know, they'll start answering that little child. Oh, well, because this, that, and other. It's about time they got a backbone and they said, it's because I said, son, and I got a big belt. What do you think about that? And they get the point. But we, well, anyway. So, Amen. So God didn't uh, put his word up for your approval. He's not looking for your approval. Oh, is that okay? Uh, is that right with you? Well, I guess I'll let it float this time, but don't do it again. Don't say that again. I don't like that kind of teaching. That's, a lot, that's the way a lot of people's approach to the Bible. Well, if it agrees with me, I might do it, but otherwise... <laughs> And on they go with their arguments and their bitterness. That's not the body of Christ. That fellow don't know where he's at. <laughs> he's not in the church of the Lord. Uh, so uh, God puts his, up, his word up and you practice it. That's your duty. Whether you understand it or whether you don't. We just do it and let God take care of the wise. Job wanted to know the why, why, why. It sounds like a baby crying after a while. And God said, it's none of your business. Uh, when you can put the stars up there in the sky where they are, and when you can command the seas, hitherto shalt thou come and no further, and you know how the mountain goats breed, uh, and you can call uh, the wild horses, and uh, and he will do what you want him to do. And when you can uh, corral the hippopotamus, hippopotamus, and ride the crocodile like he's a toy, then you come to me and talk about why. That's what he told Job. Until then, shut your mouth and do what I said. Because it's evident I love you. I've proven that in creation and in time and in history and in my word. And so I don't give answers to why you need to do this. But that's a lot of people's excuse. Well, why are you going to do this? Because God said, that's why. And so I don't uh, belong to me. That's a hard lesson to get across, isn't it? I am not my own. I was, I tried to be, uh, I tried to be for a while, but I died in a baptistry. You remember the death? And I was raised a new man with one determination to walk in newness of life, Romans 6, 3 through 6. And now that I'm not trying, I live, and that's much better than dying. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Look at the hill and you'll find out what you cost. The hill of Calvary cost God his blood, his life. That's a pretty high price. And that calls for a pretty good response when you look at the hill. When you look at the cross, it'll bring about a response. If you're looking with the 
understanding, meaning. I mean, when you look at the tree that Jesus hung on you, and see this is what God paid for you, and you realize that God is not going to ask you to do uh, much compared to that. He's not going to ask that of you. He asked it of his son. Uh, he's already outdone me, hasn't he? I mean, the Lord's outdone me, and outdoing me, he, he owns me. I was purchased on the cross, not because of the cross. I was purchased on the cross, and that's why I'd be re uh, real hesitant to say that the unbeliever's body doesn't belong to God. Born on a cross, not of the cross. If you're born of the cross, there's a lot of difference. Think about that. But if you're born on that cross, then you are the sacrifice. Are we a sacrifice? We're a sacrifice to a lost and dying world. We're a sacrifice to one another. But we don't see ourselves that way. We see, this is my life, and I'll jolly well do and go where I want to go and do what I want to do. Nobody going to tell me. We don't see that we're part of the body of Christ. We're fingers and toes and eyes and legs. And, well, uh, I'm just about finished here. Let me finish this out. I know we're running over a little. Uh, I'd be really hesitant to say that the unbeliever's body doesn't belong to God. Because is Jesus the Savior of only the saved? Think about that. Or is he the Savior of all men? He's the Savior of all men, isn't he? So I kind of believe everybody belongs to God since the cross bought, uh, bought us. I uh, imagine the cross uh, bought them also. The problem is they're not saved. That's the problem. By the only Savior they ever will have. And so what should be our response to all that we've studied and heard since we belong to God, only one purpose ought to uh, mark our will and our action. And that is to glorify God. And you see how Paul finishes out the, 20, the sixth chapter. Glorify God with your body and with all of its uh, natural desires and all of its lusts. This body uh, should uh, magnify its owner, its creator, its Savior, its Lord, rather than living a selfish life. That closes out chapter 6. Next week, chapter 7. Advice on marriage. And we don't have a list of the questions that came by way of letter to Paul. He starts out in verse 1, he says, Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me. And so they wrote some things and asked some questions and he answers in chapter 7. And we don't have a list of the questions. So we have to take the answers that Paul wrote back to him 
and kind of sometimes kind of guess at what the question must have been. Not always, but sometimes. So, chapter 7 next week. Thank you. I sometimes have a hard time thinking and appreciating you guys listening to me. <laughs>